Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20? I personally have enjoyed so much studying this. This is the 13th week now that we've been in this series following what happens to a believer from the moment of death throughout the various stages of their eternal existence. And this is the third week we're talking about the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. Now I just want to remind you again, if we were to cover all of the passages of Scripture just on the millennium, we would be here for months, maybe up to a year. There's a lot of material on it. I'm I'm being generous in condensing it down to just three weeks. This will be the final installment in that. Listen, you're going to live there for a thousand years. So, you know, three weeks getting a little bit of familiarity isn't bad. You probably forget these messages by by that time anyway. And uh, you'll then live them and uh, enjoy them. But we've gotten so, so many... Um, uh, so much positive feedback on this series, clearing up a lot of issues, but raising more questions. Well, we're going to go ahead and pray. And as we pray, I'm going to just to remind you that part of our worship is listening to what the Word of God says. So we want to maintain that attitude and atmosphere of worship by everyone remaining seated throughout the remainder of the service. I only preach 35 uh, to an hour and 35 minutes. So... No, I'll be here for about 40 minutes, and uh, then we'll all be released. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God that includes the information, the inspiration that gives us hope about our future. And Lord, our minds may be distracted this morning by trials or circumstances. We've been hurt or we're wondering... Lord, one day our future will include what we're about to read this morning. So I pray, Lord, that the things of earth, as the song says, would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Lord, help us not only to understand, but to really have hope and confidence into what our future is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read to you something written by James Dent. Now, James Dent was a columnist and humorist for the Charleston, uh, West Virginia Gazette, a newspaper, and he wrote a few years back these words. A guy heard about an operation that would enable him to get a new brain. So he went to the hospital where the surgery had been perfected and asked the doctors what was in stock. Well... Here's an excellent engineer's brain, they said. A finely honed, precise bit of gray matter. But it will cost you $500 an ounce. Well, what else you got? Asked the man. Well, we have a lawyer's brain. It's a collection of shrewd, tricky little gray cells. It's $1,000 an ounce. Well, is that all you have? Asked the man. No, Here's a doctor's brain packed full of anatomical knowledge. It's $5,000 an ounce. I don't know, the man said. Do you have anything else? Well, then the doctors looked at each other and they motioned for the man to step forward 
over to a covered container. In hushed tones, they said, this is a politician's brain. It costs $250,000 an ounce. Wow, exclaimed the fellow. Why is it so expensive? Well, the doctors told him, in the first place, it's hardly used. In the second place, do you realize how many politicians you need to get an ounce of brains? I couldn't resist. Um, I couldn't resist given the, the current political climate, and here's why. You know, politicians are like everybody's favorite scapegoat. They're the, they're the reason all of the problems exist, or if we vote one in, we expect them to solve all of the world's ills. And uh, it's, it's unrealistic expectations that, that we have of them. But at the same time, though we want them to do everything, there is less and less trust in the political structure in our country, even in our democracy. In a recent Harris poll, they asked the question, how much do you trust these institutions? Sixteen American institutions were listed. The least amount of trust was given to the United States Congress. We just don't trust those that we vote in or appoint to political leadership. I read a story two months ago in the BBC about a village in Romania. True story. They recently voted in a dead guy as their mayor because they thought he was a better alternative than the living opponent. No joke. Nicolae Ivascu, who had been the mayor for 20 years, died But he won in the election by 23 votes. And when they asked one man, why did you vote for him? He goes, look, I know that he's dead, but he's a whole lot better than the other guy. We just don't trust politicians. The ultimate form of government one day will be a benevolent dictatorship run by the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come back, repossess the earth, and and hang a sign, so to speak, over His creation under new management. The United Nations building in New York has a scripture verse over its doors. Did you know that? They have Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, written over the opening to the United Nations. It says, And they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn to make war anymore. Isn't that great? But you know what? The United Nations hasn't been able to pull that off. No politician has been able to pull that off. All those who visualize world peace can't pull that off. And after thousands of years of failed human governments... Failed monarchies, failed democracies, failed autocracies were still yearning for that time. And that time is coming, and that time is in part described in Revelation chapter 20, when it's God's turn, and today we get a little bit of a glimpse into the political structure of the coming kingdom age. We saw last time, or the last couple of times, that one of the notable features of that era will be that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And another notable feature that we camp on today is that there will be those who will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during that time. Let's look at Revelation 20, and we principally want to look at verse 4 through 6, but shall we just read verses 1 through 6 and get all in context? 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations or he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There's a few conditions that give us the political framework, the governing, ruling framework during the kingdom age. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the chronology, an eyewitness chronology. Now you'll notice that chapter 20 begins with this little phrase, Then I saw. And then again in verse 4, And I saw. And again the second sentence in verse 4, And I saw the souls. Now I bring that to your attention because in the book of Revelation, John does that about 25 times. And basically he sees something in a vision... He writes it down. He sees something else. He writes it down. And each time he says, And I saw. Then I saw. And I heard. Then I saw. And so he gives to us a chronological progression of a revelation. Keep in mind, John is not making this up. This is a direct revelation from heaven to John about the future. Go back with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. And look at the first two verses of the book. It's introduced this way. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that is Jesus, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all the things that he saw. So you get the progression. The Father gives the revelation to the Son. The Son gives it to an angel. The angel gives it to John. John sees it. He writes it down. And it's chronological what he sees and what he writes. This is not a near-death experience. This is not a a burrito with onion-induced dream. This is a direct revelation from God about the future. And John writes it down. Now, the book of Revelation really is not that difficult to understand if you just read it at face value. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 19, the outline to the entire book is given. The angel says to John, Write the things which you have seen, 
the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Metatauta in the Greek, literally, after these things. And so that's what John does. Chapter 1, he writes about what he sees, the vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ. Chapter 2 and 3 is about seven churches. And he writes about their condition and what Jesus says about each one, right? And these churches not only are seven local congregations, but they seem to also represent church history in its entirety chronologically. So he writes what he sees. He writes about the things that are, that are going on in the churches. And then in chapter 4, there's a change. It says... After these things, same Greek construction, metatauta, after these things, and John is immediately caught up into heaven and sees everything about the heavenly realm and even what's going on on earth from a heavenly perspective. So he's caught up into heaven. There in heaven, he writes about the throne of God. And in chapter 6 through 19, he writes about the tribulation period, a seven-year period of judgment on the earth. At the end of that, in chapter 19, Jesus comes back to the earth with the saints. And then in chapter 20, and I saw, and there's a thousand-year period. So we, we can follow that chronology all the way through. Something that may interest you is that the pattern of the book of Revelation is similar to the pattern of ancient Jewish weddings. You see, I don't know if you know this, but in ancient times... Um, when there was a wedding, the groom would show up at the bride's house unannounced. They knew roughly when he was coming, but they never knew what time of the day or night he would be coming. He would show up with a wedding party. They better be ready. He would come to the bride's house, take her from her house to his house where the wedding ceremony would take place. After the wedding ceremony, the bride and groom would retire to the bridal chamber, consummate their marriage. There would then be a feast for seven days. Anybody in the neighborhood could attend. During the seven days, the bride and groom were in seclusion. And at the end of the seven days, the groom would bring forth the bride and present her, present themselves to their audience. And so we have in the book of Revelation, the church Beginning in chapter 4, caught up into heaven, there for seven years. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then at the very end in Revelation 19, the bride and groom, the church and Christ, return together. And so John is just writing what he sees. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and it's in chronological order. So this is what I want to get across. Your eternal life has stages to it. I hope by now you've abandoned the idea of, well, we die, we go sit on a cloud, we play a harp for millions and millions of years, just so sort of do a whole lot of nothing. That is as far away from the truth as you can get. There's different phases of your eternal existence. If you die now, you're caught up in the spirit in in heaven. You behold the throne of God. You await bodily resurrection. You then get a resurrected body at the rapture of the church. You then will return to the earth for a thousand years. You'll then enter into what's called the eternal state, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, which we begin to talk about next week. You know, sort of like your earthly existence. There are different phases to your physical earthly existence. First, there was the gestation period. You're in a womb for nine months. Anybody remember that? Of course you don't. But it's a continuation of your life. You're you're the same person that was in that womb. Then there was 
infancy and then toddlerhood and then adolescence and then adulthood and then eventually there's the geriatric phase. All different phases that are very distinct from one another but all part of your continuance. So it will be with your eternal life. Different stages and phases. I love this text in in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7. Paul says, That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kingdom toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's going to take God all of eternity to reveal and show so that you and I will discover and have adventures. That's how eternity is going to unfold. It's going to be an ongoing revelation of really cool stuff. I know that didn't sound too theological, cool stuff, but it will be. So keep in mind, we are following what John sees given to him by God in chronological order. Second thing I want you to notice about the political structure of that era is administrative authority. Look at verse 4 with me again. Verse 4 of chapter 20. Then I saw, or and I saw, thrones, plural, thrones, and they, whoever they are, sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So we have thrones, plural, they and them. Are mentioned. Clearly, there is a plurality of administrative authority in the kingdom age. Because throne in the Bible can only mean one of two things either judicial authority or regal royal authority. That's only how it's ever used. So there is some kind of plurality of authority. Okay, let's back up just a bit. Who is the ultimate authority in the kingdom age? Exactly, Jesus Christ, because when he comes back, Revelation nineteen sixteen, he bears the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the ultimate central governing authority. And that's exactly what he was promised throughout the scripture. The Bible promises that the Messiah will come, rule over the whole earth, which hasn't happened yet, And he will do so from the throne of David in Jerusalem. There are many, many, many promises that speak to that. Here's a couple. One of the most famous is Isaiah chapter 9. We read it every Christmas, typically. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, etc. And it goes on to say, And the government will be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward. And then you remember when the angel came to Mary and announced that she's going to have a child and she was freaking out. How can these things be? And the angel calms her down and explains and says, you will name him Jesus. And it says, he will be great. This is Luke chapter 1. He will be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So that takes place here. Jesus comes back to the earth. He's now king of kings and lord of lords, ruling in absolute sovereign authority. But he's not going it alone. He has help. Not that he needs help. But he certainly invites it. 
I remember as a boy, I used to say when I was just a little kid, I helped dad today. All I really did is kind of stand around and hold the hammer and mess things up. But he allowed me to be part of it because he liked that idea that we were doing it together. We're going to be, or some group is going to be on thrones giving authority at that time. So notice, I saw thrones, plural. And they sat on them and judgment or authority was committed to them. The question is then, who are they? Who are they? We're not really told, are we? Well, I guess the best answer would be, they are the ones that God wants to sit on the thrones. You say, that doesn't help me a whole lot. Okay, back up and ask this question. This is how we'll approach it. What group or who in the Bible does God promise that they will have a kingdom or administrate a kingdom, sit on thrones and have authority? Okay, we can answer that. We can go all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, where we read in verse 18, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. By the way, when you read saints in the Bible, you know by now, it's not speaking of the dudes on the holy cards with the little halos around their heads, the glow. These are real living people now. You are in the Bible what the Bible calls saints just simply means you're set apart by God. So Daniel 7, the saints will possess the kingdom. Also in Daniel 7, verse 27, it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, that is, to the saints of the Most High. So God promises that, first of all, Old Testament saints... And it would also then include New Testament saints, God's people, will administrate the kingdom. Number two, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 19 that his apostles, his 12 apostles, would have a special administrative role. This is Matthew 19, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, literal translation, the second genesis, the recreation. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now let me just ask a question right here. If the kingdom is now, as the amillennialist says, if this is the kingdom of God, this is the millennium, then where are the Old Testament saints reigning? And where are the 12 apostles administering the 12 tribes of Israel? So you get get into all sorts of interpretive quagmire when you go that route. Well, we have Old Testament saints reigning. We have the apostles given special administrative duty. Also, the New Testament says that New Testament believers will also rule and reign. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, get this. Paul writes, Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? Whoa! We're going to judge the world. He goes on to say, Don't you realize that we will judge angels? Now, I don't think some of the angels are too crazy about that notion, but that's what it says. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. 
And there are many, many, many passages that say that. We just don't have enough time this morning to go through all of them. But here's a final one. In Revelation 5, when the church is gathered together and we're singing an anthem to God, among our lyrics in that song are these. For you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So it couldn't be any more clear than that. Old Testament saints, apostles, and New Testament believers are going to be they and them ruling. You say, well, Skip, you left out a group. You're right. And that fourth group is mentioned in this verse. Notice the second sentence. And I saw the souls of them who had been beheaded. And so it's as if to say they're included, but they're not the only group who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived So they died, they were martyred, but now they're resurrected. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So all the tribulation believers who are martyred will also be among the they or the them. In other words, all the resurrected saints of all the ages will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Look at verse 6. We'll just sort of underscore that. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. I'll explain in a minute. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So all of them. Old Testament saints glorified. New Testament saints glorified, resurrected. Tribulation saints martyred, glorified, resurrected. And the apostles will all share in that administrative government. Then, and only then, will there be justice in the courts. Then there will be law on the streets. Then there will be truth in the media. Then bookstands won't be filled with filth, but with truth and righteousness. And the media will project that which is true and holy. Now, some of you at this point might be thinking, man, that sounds like a lot of work. That's not my idea of heaven. You're thinking, look, I I work now and I hope to retire when all the work is behind me. And maybe you have thought that heaven is like one eternal vacation where you do nothing. So you hear all this stuff about ruling and reigning and you're thinking, i got to work? This is not my idea of heaven. Well, it might not be, but it's God's idea of heaven. And keep in mind, you're going to be glorified. You'll be in a resurrected body. You're going to have the energy and the vim and youthfulness that maybe you once had. And it's going to be fun. Here's some insight, perhaps, into that. Jesus said in Luke 19, I will say to them, Well done, good and faithful servant, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Now take charge of ten cities. To another I will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. Now take charge of five cities. You can say, look, I really don't want to rule anything. I'm not good at being in charge. Well, you think you're going to mess up any more than what has been done already on this earth? Number two, do you think the apostles are like the... They're not the brightest bulbs in the bunch. And they're going to administrate the 12 tribes of Israel. So keep in mind, again, you're going to be in a glorified, resurrected renewed state, and your capacities will be very different. 
So in some capacity, we're going to be ruling and reigning, having administrative duties, carrying out the will of the ultimate sovereign authority, Jesus Christ, somewhere on this earth. Let me just say now for the record, I get dibs on Maui. All right. Just want to get that out there right now or Kauai, either one. I'll take either one of those two islands. It'd be a cool place to have jurisdiction over. Look at verse five, verse five, verse five takes us to a third condition that underscores the political framework. And that is what I'm calling social stability. Now, let's look at it. But the rest of the dead did not live again or get resurrected until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, who are the rest of the dead? I mean, think about it. If the Old Testament saints who are dead have been resurrected and are reigning, if the New Testament saints who have died and are resurrected and reigning, if the tribulation martyred believers are now resurrected and the apostles who have died and are resurrected, who does that leave? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. The rest of the dead. Now keep this in mind. There's not just a resurrection for believers. There is a resurrection for unbelievers as well so that they can eternally endure what God meets out to them in terms of judgment and condemnation. Look at verse 11. It tells us their fate. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. This is the rest of the dead. Small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So... John, who writes this book, John tells us, calls the believer's resurrection to life the first resurrection, which would mean the second resurrection a thousand years later for unbelievers is the second resurrection. This is consistent with all of Scripture. Daniel chapter 2 or 12, verse 2, the prophet writes, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, that's resurrection, some to everlasting life. That's the first resurrection. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the second resurrection. Jesus said the same thing. John chapter 5, verse 28. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. That's the resurrection. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's the first resurrection. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's the second resurrection. And here's my point. Entering into the millennial kingdom, people ruling and reigning with Christ, but the rest of the dead didn't live till after the thousand years. That's when they get resurrected. Which means that the millennium begins 
with all believers. All those who enter into the millennium are either resurrected saints or mortals who were believers and made it through to the end of the tribulation period. No unbelievers. The unbelievers have died and they're awaiting their judgment. You say, well, what happened to them all? Well, they were destroyed by the cataclysmic, catastrophic judgments of the tribulation. And if you've ever read that book, you know that in one judgment, a third of mankind is destroyed. In another, a fourth of mankind is destroyed. They either died then or... They were executed at the Battle of Armageddon, chapter 19, or they were banished in the sheep and goat judgment, the judgment of the nations outlined in Matthew 25. So they're gone. Also, who's bound for a thousand years? Satan. So if you get all unbelievers out of the way and Satan banished for a thousand years, you now have extremely stable social conditions, right? Extreme social stability. And Isaiah put it this way, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea. And to boot, all of the politicians are going to be resurrected saints. I know, it's real hard to imagine. There were three guys that were having an argument. They were trying to argue about whose profession was the oldest profession. And the first one to speak was a surgeon. He said, well, mine is the oldest profession because we read in the Bible that that um, God carved a rib out of Adam and made a woman. So that makes my profession, that of a surgeon, the oldest on earth. Well, the second guy among the three was an engineer. He said, ah, go back further. The Bible says that in six days, God created the earth out of chaos. That's the job of an engineer. Well, the third guy in the group was a politician who, when he heard that, smiled real big and said, Ah, but who created the chaos? (laughs) Well, there will be no chaos for that thousand years because it will be the resurrected believers, apostles, Old Testament, New Testament, martyr, tribulation, saints, glorified, resurrected, who will monitor and help and adjudicate all of those mortals who are on the earth during that time. They're going to populate the earth and there's going to be generations born and more generations born and a thousand years of repopulating the planet. Now those mortals, though all believers, will have children who also have a free will and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will also have a free will and they'll have the chance to receive or reject Jesus Christ and some will receive and some will reject Because we read here in our text that we don't have time to go through it today. There will be a rebellion even at the end of the thousand years. Now, the last couple days, I know you've been watching some of it yourselves. I've been watching the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. And the camera angles they have today are like much cooler every time a new Olympics is on, right? Well, I read an interesting little article that said the security in Beijing is so tight They've installed 300,000 security cameras to cover every inch of Beijing. And the software employed in these 300,000 cameras, they have face recognition software. This is the highest tech security ever. Plus, they have 30,000 police officers and army roaming the streets, top security. The other night was the opening ceremony. Did any of you catch that? 
90,000 people, 203 nations with their flag. It was beautiful. Now, in the audience, our president, Vladimir Putin, the head of state of Japan, prime ministers from around the world, all of these different politicians who may not agree and may not get together under any circumstance, but there they are together. It was almost as if it were a little smidgen of the millennium. I mean, I was deceiving myself maybe for a moment, and I'm thinking of there's peace and there's unity and there's all these leaders. Of course, that was all shattered by reading the paper the next day when there was a murder that took place of an American by a terrorist, and his tour guide was also murdered. So with all of the security personnel, all of the cameras, it didn't exist. There will be peace and security. And how it's all going to work, I don't know. You know, I've got to tell you, my mind sort of goes to a movie that was put out a few years ago, The Minority Report. Anybody see that? Anybody as carnal as I am sees movies? So... Um, one of the premises is that there's these precogs and they can, they can tell if a violent crime is about to be committed. They, they can see sort of the thoughts of people and even before it's committed, they stop it. I don't know what kind of capacities we're all going to have as resurrected beings during that thousand years on earth, but it must be pretty special because we're going to rule and reign with him, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. It's an ironclad, immediate judicial reign. Be very, very cool. Well, let's look at verse 6 and finish this off. The fourth and final mark politically during this period is there's a spiritual invincibility. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, mentioned in verse 5 also. Over such, the second death, that's what happens to unbelievers, has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to face the first resurrection, the resurrection to life. You will never face ever eternal death. And this is an answer to a question I got a couple weeks ago. And somebody said, so how does it work? Like in the millennium, are we going to be able to like blow it and sin and then, then we get banished? No way. You're going to have glorified, resurrected body without the capacity to sin. Without the capacity to sin. There's no little trial period where, you know what, I gave you those five cities. You really blew it big time. You're out of here. Not at all. At this point, you're spiritually invincible. You'll never be judged for sin. You will always be serving him. As Paul wrote, he will save us from the wrath that is to come. So, this leaves a question that I have been, well, skirting or putting off for a few weeks. And here's the question. Okay, so with all this perfection on earth, thousand years, peace, wow. Why verse 7? Why would God allow verse 7? And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. I got to tell you, I'll be honest, I don't like that verse. This is one of the imponderables of Scripture. But I love what Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who was the dean of Dallas Seminary, once said If you tell me why God released him the first time, then I'll tell you why God releases him the second time. I think there's good wisdom in that. It's probably for the same reasons, or at least in part. Now, I'm going to give you an answer 
And I've been saying for a couple of weeks, oh, we'll look at that next week. Oh, we'll look at that next week. Well, I've run out of weeks. So I've got to give you something, and it probably won't be a satisfying answer. There's a couple of things I can think of. Number one, this is going to demonstrate that even after a thousand years of incarceration, the nature of the devil has not changed. He's still a rebel. He wants to bring people down. He wants to disgrace God, and he will start a rebellion and insurrection. Number two, this is going to demonstrate that the essential nature and character of man doesn't change either. Even in the perfect environment, even in utopia, where all the weapons are banished and turned into agricultural implements, where there's peace and utopia. You know, for years people have said, well, if you just put a person in the perfect environment, they're going to act perfect. Well, they're going to have a perfect environment. And yet some will choose to go in this rebellion, the rest of these verses say. Jeremiah was right. The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. So, I have a suggestion. Since it says in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Here's my suggestion. Make sure you take part in the first resurrection. How do I do that? By today, here and now, making a choice to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, there's a little formula that I've used based on this verse. It goes like this. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. I'll explain it very simply. If you're only born once, and obviously we all have been because here we are living and breathing... If you're only born once physically, but never reborn spiritually, John chapter 3, you must be born again, you will die twice, physically and eternally. It's called the second death. But if you're born twice, physically and spiritually, at best you'll only die once, physically. But never a second death, never eternally. So my firm, strong, loving Suggestion is make sure you take place in the first resurrection. So God is going to rule the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. But the Bible seems to indicate that ruling the universe is a family business. He wants to extend that to all of His children who trust in Him. Are you in His family? Have you trusted Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we read throughout the Scripture that there are so many great things that are coming down the pike for our enjoyment. And it, it certainly beats the notion that we're going to sprout wings and turn into angels or we're going to sit on a cloud and look at the sky for a million years. But we're going to have some definite roles and there's going to be different segments of our eternal existence. All very, very cool. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know Jesus Christ and all of these messages on death and heaven and resurrection and the millennium and then the eternal state. Lord, I pray that that anybody here who doesn't know you would not toy with eternity any longer, would not bank that they're going to live another day or week or month Because as we have seen in a church with so many thousands of people and the funerals that we do every week here, that death could happen at any time. 
Lord, I just pray that everyone would be so secure that the second death would have no power over them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.